0: greatest example of your judgment in history we can't help but look forward to the greatest judgment yet coming and we still have hope we have hope that you will rescue us before that judgment that we are not meant for that judgment we thank you for the example of noah and how you save the righteous before judgment comes we thank you that jesus has already finished on the cross all that is necessary to rescue us and that through faith alone We have that guarantee of your faithful word towards us. We thank you for all these things, Lord, in the name of your Son, Jesus Christ. Amen. All right, you may be seated. All right, we are still in Genesis. We are about two-thirds of the way through our section on Genesis 1 through 11. These foundational chapters that really open to us the doctrine that we will find throughout every chapter and every verse of Scripture thus forward. So these are very important chapters that we're going over. And we've really been focusing in Noah's generation on judgment and salvation. How the two really do go hand in hand. There must be something to be saved from. And God, being a righteous God, must judge sin. But God, being a merciful and loving God, has provided a means of escape for those who put their faith in his work and not in their own work. And so we see as we come to the end of this dispensation of conscience, which truly ends in this passage, it is over from the moment God shuts Noah in that ark. The world that once was is gone. And Noah becomes the second Adam. He becomes the new head of the race. And he becomes that through grace. God provided a means. And God has provided a means in a far greater head of the race now, and that is Jesus Christ. And all who have faith in him are born again into that new redeemed race. And we call that today the church. So here as we look at this historical event of the flood, we want to keep in mind that God has promised a future judgment, just as in Noah's life he had promised a future judgment. But he also promised him salvation from that. And Noah had faith in God, that God would save him, just as he said. So we're going to look at some examples of how God was faithful before Noah, so that Noah could trust, just like we can trust, with so much more evidence of God's faithfulness. And so our main point this morning is that God's faithful word promises judgment for wickedness and salvation for the righteous. And judgment comes when the righteous are removed. The scriptures we're looking at this morning are kind of a table of contents what is going to come after it we're going to get through that table of contents where moses gives us a quick summary of what is about to happen in the flood he gives us the date in verse 6 the people who are on the ark in verse 7 the animals that enter the ark in verses 8 and 9 and then a statement on noah's obedience in the second part of verse 9, then he's going to go and give us more detail about each one of these uh, circumstances. We're only going to look at the details surrounding the date in verses 10 through 12, because those give us the initiation of the flood, how it began and what systems God used to flood the earth. That is how we will conclude this morning. And then next week we will pick it up and uh, get them into full swing in the flood, resting in God's salvation of the ark. So starting in verse 6, we get the date by means of Noah's age. It says Noah was 600 years old when the flood of water came upon the earth. You'll remember that the ages of the patriarchs before the flood were quite a bit longer. And this is because their genetics were still pure. We get a genetic bottleneck here with Noah, and their ages are going to start to decrease rapidly. There is not as good genes to circulate throughout the human population, and as they go along, those mutations continue to decrease the ages. However, we'll remember that so far through Genesis, things are dated by the age of patriarchs. When a son is born, we're given the date of their, or the age of their father, and we're also given the age when they die. By comparing all of these, we come up with a very good understanding of how long um, passed between creation and the flood, and it's about 1700 years. That's not a terribly long time. That is less time than separates us from Jesus Christ's earthly ministry. This was a short period of time in which wickedness had so progressed on the earth that God had to judge it by wiping it clean. We're given another date for Noah. In fact, his date or his uh, age or his, uh, his life is scattered with many different dates of when things happened and how old he was when it happened. For example, here in Genesis 5.32, we're told that he was 500 years old when he became the father of Shem, Hem, and Japheth. We'll find out that that is probably the age he was when he had his first son, but we're going to wait until we get to chapter 11 for that. But we're also told then how old Shem was when Shem had his first son. We'll see Shem was 90, or Shem was uh, 100 years old, two years after the flood, which means Shem was born when Noah was 502 years old. So we know more about Noah's life than most lives in this section between Genesis 1 and 11. Noah is a very important character, and with such detail, we want to think about why has God provided so much detail through Noah. We're also told in Genesis 6:3. 3 now this was not uh, a date about Noah, but we're told that there would be 120 years left of grace from God. So this prophecy from God came 120 years before the flood when Noah was 480 years old. We get a very complete timeline of Noah's life. Of course, he was zero years old when Lamech had him or when Lamech's wife gave birth to Noah. This was probably about 200 or 2,948 B.C. We see when God prophesies the flood, he's 480. When he becomes a father, he's 500. When the flood begins, he's 600. When the flood ends, he's 601. When he becomes a grandfather, he's 603. When the Babel dispersion happens, it's sometime around The time when he is 705 years old, he still lives another 250 years after the Babel dispersion. Noah saw a lot in his lifetime. He lived almost an entire millennium. In fact, he he dies only 16 years short of being, or what is that? 19 years short of being the oldest man in history. He was the second oldest. God's mercy towards him, God's grace towards him is evident at every step of his life. And Noah's faithfulness, Noah's resting in God is also evident. Multiple times, in fact, I think it's about six or seven times we're told that Noah either obeyed God or Noah was righteous because of his faith in God. We want to have this kind of character when we are trusting in God, and we can see how God can use us when we are resting in him and trusting in him. Noah, you see, spans these two worlds. There will be a generation in the church that is going to span two worlds as well, one that does not see death, one that is transferred over into the next world. Uh, that Will happen through the rapture. Noah is actually a better type, however, of the remnant of Israel. The remnant of Israel, which will be carried through the stormy waters of the seven-year tribulation period, and arrive in bodily form in the new world. A generation of people still in mortal bodies, not regenerate or not uh, not having received a translated body. So we see, as we look at God's plan in the Old Testament and how he brought it about, we get a picture of how he works and how he might fulfill yet future prophecy. But we also want to look at Noah's dependence upon God because if there's one thing we can say about national Israel today, it is not dependent on God they are dependent on all of the things that they are able to do themselves and the same could be said for us but national israel is going to have to have their stiff neck turned back towards god so that they trust him fully and they are going to spend three and a half years tucked away under his wings protected in petra Genesis six seventeen through 18 says, Behold, I, even I, am bringing the flood of water upon the earth to destroy all flesh in which is the breath of life. From under the heavens, everything that is on the earth shall perish, but I will establish my covenant with you, and you shall enter the ark, you and your sons and your wife and your sons' wives with you. When Noah received this from God, we don't even know if he had sons yet. He may have, but this is some time between 120 years before the flood, and the flood, when God says, "You, your sons, your wife, and your sons' wives are going to be with you on the ark." God knew what that would look like before Noah could even conceive of how God was going to save them. Noah could not do anything but trust. Just believe. I guarantee you there was nothing easy about that. But there was something reasonable about that. God had never before failed him. Nothing God had ever said before had failed. Therefore, as difficult as it may have been for Noah for over a hundred years to just simply put his trust in God, that was all that was required of him. And then in verse 7 of chapter 7, we see that God is faithful to his word, even when it seems out of his control. Says Noah and his sons and his wife and his son's wives, with him entered the ark because of the waters of the flood. No one else in this generation listened to Noah's message. But his family did, and God prophesied that ahead of time that although the entire generation would spurn Noah's preaching, his family would not. God does give encouragement in his prophecies as well. This probably sustained Noah as he's looking around and seeing, my preaching is not doing anything. No one is turning to you, Lord. And we don't know how early his children put their faith in God. Perhaps there were decades or even right up close to a century when his children did not because all it took was a moment of faith for them to step onto the ark at just the right time before God shut the door and the waters of the flood began. It takes only a moment of faith to secure any person in the sure grip of Jesus Christ the Son and God the Father. That should also speak volumes to us that no one else was on the ark. In that generation, it had become so wicked that there were none willing to just simply trust. To just say, this message doesn't make perfect sense to us because we don't see this happening today. But we look at God's record of faithfulness in the past and we say, okay, I will trust you, God, because you are trustworthy. And we see that even down to the minutest of details, God is faithful to do exactly what he says he will do. In fact, he did not even tell Noah to go and gather these animals. He says they will come to you. And this is exactly what happens. In Genesis 7, 8 through 9, it says of the clean animals and animals that are not clean and birds and everything that creeps on the ground, these four categories of animals that God has instructed Noah about, they went into the ark to Noah, and they came by twos. Now, this is that same two, two, just as seven, seven. So, this is actually talking about fours, but this isn't giving us a quantity of animals. He's already given us a quantity of animals. This is telling us the mode in which they entered the ark. They entered side by side. Perhaps this made it easy for Noah to count. And to see just how faithful God had been to every last detail of his word. They did not enter the ark in chaos, they entered in order. Noah watched, and as he watched this ark fill up, I am sure that his confidence in God is filling up. Just as you said, Lord, so it is happening. They came, male and female. This was so that they would preserve life on the earth. There is hope that this will not end in the waters of the flood. This ark will not sink. This ark will make it to the new world that God has promised. On the other side, when he will make a covenant not only with Noah and his family and the rest of mankind, but as well with the animals who are on the ark. The Noahic covenant, which we will begin to study in just a few weeks, is a covenant with all of creation. God will be faithful to that. So at this point, when God is about to seal the doors with Noah and his family and all the animals inside, Noah has absolutely every reason in the world to fully and confidently trust God, just as we do today. Last week, we looked at a survey that would have been encouraging to Israel. The prophecies that had been fulfilled, the prophecies that they could look forward to being fulfilled, because the book of Genesis was given to the Israelites during the Exodus generation. Well, today we're going to look at some prophecies that God fulfilled before Noah. These would have spoken directly to him. And when we look at the prophecies fulfilled before Noah that gave him confidence, the prophecies fulfilled before Israel that should have given them confidence, we get a picture of our confidence that we should have in Christ. And so in verse 10, it records that it came about after seven days, that the waters of the flood came upon the earth. This was exactly as God said it would happen. This should be no surprise to Noah, because everything that God has ever said has happened just as he said it would. For example in the garden of eden the very first prophecy ever made by god to man he says when you eat of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil in that day you will surely die this was a prophecy and what happened the woman ate her husband who was with her he ate and we get evidence of their spiritual death They saw that they were naked and they covered their loins. If you remember when we went through this, this was quite a few months ago, this probably has to do with the reduplication of the sin nature, of death in each person, that no longer would life be given to life, but life would be given to death. Those who were produced from Adam and Eve from that point forward were born with a ticking clock and it's counting down no one was born eternally alive they would have to be reborn into eternal life through the savior and so spiritual death began immediately and spiritual death always gives way to physical death and so in genesis 5 verse 4 we see that the days of adam after he became a father to seth were 800 years that's still quite a long time He had other sons and daughters, but so all the days Adam lived were 930 years, and he died. God was faithful to his word. If you disobey, if you eat from this tree, you will die. We're not surprised by what happened. Death was the consequence for disobedience, and it happened just as God said it would happen. In Genesis 3.15, we get one of our favorite prophecies that God has ever given to us. That of a savior seed who would come from the woman. One who would crush the head of the serpent, and this has not been fulfilled yet. Though he has dealt a death blow to the serpent, we have not fully realized yet what this will mean when Satan is put away forever. Forever. You could say we are at the point where, God has, or where Christ has put his foot down on the serpent's head, but he has not yet lifted it up to reveal that death. But we have another prophecy here as well. That the woman would have a continued line. That through her, there would still come life. Not only that final life that would come through the Messiah, but a continuous human line. So even though death is the consequence, life was still promised. This was God's grace. And sure enough, in Genesis 4.1, Eve conceived and gave birth. She gave birth to Cain, who killed his brother. But even when we are unfaithful, remember, God is still faithful. She gave birth to another son, a replacement for Abel, whom Cain had killed, And his name was Seth, and through him, not only is the human line continued, because he is the grandfather of Noah. Cain's line did not continue life on the earth. We get a record of seven of their generations, but eventually they die out. They corrupt themselves to such a degree that not only are they killing themselves off, but eventually God wipes the earth clean from them. But through Seth, Through Seth, life continues. This was a promise of God. This was a prophecy fulfilled, that although death came to the individual for disobedience, God would still protect life. How about this prophecy? We might not see this one going through a cursory reading of Genesis 4, But God makes Cain a promise as well before Cain sins and kills his brother. He says, if you do well, or if you do well, will not your countenance be lifted up? Is not reconciliation waiting for you? But if you do not do well, sin is crouching at the door. And its desire is for you, but you must master it. The implication is if you do not master it, it will master you. And what happens? Cain rises up against his brother Abel and he kills him. The consequence of this is the content of God's prophecy. And so we see the immediate effect. Now you are cursed from the ground which has opened its mouth to receive your brother's blood from your hands. When you cultivate the ground, it will no longer yield its strength to you, You will be a vagrant and a wanderer on the earth. This was true as well. Remember, Cain went off to the land of Nod. Nod means wandering. He didn't go off to a land named wandering. He went off wandering the land just as God said he would. But sin continues to reduplicate, to take mastery over those who submit to it until Genesis 6, 5 reads that the Lord saw the wickedness of man was great on the earth, and that every intent of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. The world that surrounded Noah was a fulfillment of God's prophecy to Cain, that sin unmastered will take over. We have a hopeful prophecy here as well. Genesis 5:21, we get a prophecy of Enoch, a prophecy which came in the form of the name he gave his son, probably under prophetic inspiration from God, because this is the only name in that list of 10 names in the patriarchs between Adam and Noah, which is a sentence, not just a word. Enoch names his son Methuselah. Now, some say that this name means man of the spear, because met means man and selah means spear. But these words are actually derived from the meanings of mortality in meth and emission in selah, to shoot. A missile would also be selah. What they're missing is this verbal particle right in the middle. That verbal particle, when added to mortality, means he dies. And we get a temporal addition to that, that at the time he dies, the next thing that will follow is an emission. Something will be sent. In fact, salah is also a word used for aqueducts, water canals, and water channels. When he dies, it will be sent. I like how Dr. Arnold Fruchtenbaum explains this. He says, in Hebrew, Methuselah may mean man of the spear, or more more likely when he dies, it shall be sent. If this is true, his name was given to him prophetically. It shall be sent was a prophecy of the flood, as Methuselah's father, who was also functioning as a prophet, according to Jude 14 and 15, gave him this name. Indeed, according to the chronology of Genesis, the very year Methuselah died was when the flood came. I'm sure as Noah's grandfather, Methuselah, died, and on God's prophetic time clock, he saw the days ticking down, he was confident that God was faithful to every last word. In 1 Peter 3, we read that the patience of God kept waiting in the days of Noah, all the days Methuselah lived, during the construction of the ark in which few, that is, eight persons, were brought safely through the water. And so, when God tells Noah, seven more days, and I will send rain on the earth 40 days and 40 nights, Noah knows with absolute certainty That God is going to take care of him through the flood. And sure enough, in Genesis 7, verse 10 after seven days, the water of the flood came upon the earth. And it was in the 600th year of Noah's life, and it was in the second month, on the 17th day of the month. Noah took note of the day. That this happened. And he is going to track God's faithfulness all throughout the flood. Rather than moaning and groaning about how God has abandoned him, he is watching with eager anticipation God's complete fulfillment of his word. And so we have the fulfillment. God judges and he also saves. We can be confident, just as the psalmist is, that God will be faithful to his word for us. For the word of the Lord is upright, and all his work is done in faithfulness. He loves righteousness and justice. The earth is full of the loving kindness of the Lord. This would seem strange to say this around the time of the flood, wouldn't it? The earth is full of the loving kindness of the Lord. But the flood can be measured as a, uh, or the world could be measured as wicked on man's account. But that grace which God extended to the whole world, that although man is wicked to the core, God's loving kindness spreads out over all that earth in providing grace. Psalm 36, I think the psalmist had the flood in mind when he wrote this psalm. He says, Your loving kindness, O Lord, extends to the heavens. Your faithfulness reaches to the skies. Your righteousness is like the mountains of God. Your judgments are like a great deep. O Lord, you preserve man and beast. How precious is your loving kindness, O God! And the children of men take refuge in the shadow of your wings. They drink their fill of abundance of your house, and you give them to drink of the river of your delights. For with you is the fountain of life. In your light we see light. These last few verses we jump in to the next section of scripture where Moses gives us more detail about each of the processes of this flood. With careful detail, he notes God's faithfulness and so the very first thing that is mentioned is the fountains of the great deep burst open. We'll see that God charged the earth already with destructive forces. God uses those to judge. All the fountains of the great deep burst opened and either an and which initiates a simultaneous action or an action in succession, meaning these two things happened at the same time or the fountains of the great deep burst open first. But the rains could not come before the fountains of the great deep burst. This is actually the principal cause. The fountains of the great deep, which God had given to the earth to water the ground, to bring life and productivity to the earth, to bring food for mankind to eat, were now breaking through the surface to wash the whole thing clean. We talked about the way that God watered the earth, probably through thermal geysers, something like Yellowstone. It's pretty neat, in my opinion. It's just a postulation. But it sounds like this is what scripture is talking about. God chose to water the earth by means of the tectonics within it. A functioning creation with all of its parts working together to do exactly as God intended it to do and all of its parts prepared together for all that God would do in the future. Here in Genesis 2.6, we see that God used to use a mist that would rise from the earth to water the land. There was probably no rain until the beginning of these uh, of those forty days of rain. That was probably the first time Noah saw anything like that. These fountains of the great deep were prepared on day two and three. If you remember, there was a blessing that was postponed until the end of day three. What began on day two was not blessed until day three. This creation was not quite complete. God said, let the waters below the heavens be gathered into one place, and let the dry land appear, and it was so. God called the dry land earth, and the gathering of waters he called seas. And God saw that it was good. This is much like our earth today, but it is subtly different. God gathered these things into one place. There was probably far less water on the surface of the earth. It was primarily underneath. And God used geysers to water the ground. We see some of those geysers here in Genesis 2. These rivers that come out of Eden don't act like normal rivers. It says, now the rivers, or river flowed out of Eden to water the garden, and from there it divided and became four rivers. Rivers come together to flow into the ocean. They do not break apart and go separate ways. The name of the first is Pishon. It flows around the whole land of Havilah where there is gold. The gold of the land is good, and the bdellium and the onyx stone are there. The name of the second river is Gihon. It flows around the whole land of Cush. The name of the third river is Tigris. It flows out of Assyria. And the fourth river is the Euphrates. These are all flowing out of Eden. They are flowing out of one central spot. Eden was elevated. It was the great mountain of God. We get back to a great mountain in the new creation and the river of life is going to flow out of the throne on top of that great millennial mountain. John in Revelation records, then he showed me a river of the water of life, clear as crystal coming from the throne of God and of the lamb in the middle of its street. On either side of the river was a tree of life bearing 12 kinds of fruit, yielding its fruit every month and the leaves on the trees were for the healing of the nations. What we are going to is much like what we have come from. The restoration will be much like the creation. And in Revelation 21, we see that when John saw a new heavens and a new earth, he made another observation. And this would probably be one that would stand out to us, too, if we saw the earth from above in its new creation form. The first heaven and the first earth have passed away, and there is no longer any sea. The sea was a means that God prepared on the earth for this exact judgment. I lived in South Korea for a while. Every time I flew over the ocean, I couldn't help but look down and see God's creative but destructive force. Now, I'm a little biased because I don't like water that much. Don't tell my mother. She's a swim instructor. But water... Terrifies me a little bit. Its destructive power is incredible. And when you're somewhere over the Pacific Ocean, no idea where exactly, and you look down, all you see is water. There is no land, and you don't know how deep it is. I can't imagine how scared Noah would be if he didn't have God to rely on. I would not want to be on a boat for a year. A year and 17 days would be only 17 days worse. But it says the fountains of the great deep burst open. Wouldn't there be evidence of this? Well, there is. We could probably pinpoint right where these fountains of the great deep burst. This isn't the only place on earth where these kind of fractures exist. But I would say our scars kind of give away the fact that God might do exactly as he says he will do, and when we look at scripture, we have good evidence that just as God said, the fountains of the great deep burst open and the water came through them, so the fountains of the great deep burst open and water came through, and now we have oceans. This one's from the side. You can see the Mid-Atlantic Ridge. I'm no geologist, but I do kind of trust the geologists from the Institute of creation, creation Research, who say this is probably where the water began to come through. These burst open. There's a lot of tectonics that would coincide with that, that as God starts moving these plates around, things begin to change. And what ensues is one of the most hellish judgments we could ever imagine, where the earth begins to, begins to fill with water. It springs a leak from the inside out. And this is not cool, clean, crisp lake water or ocean water. This is chemical water that's superheated from inside the earth, bursting out under all of the pressure of everything that is sitting on top of it. When the earth sprung a leak, it created a hellscape unlike anything we could imagine. But here Noah is, tucked away safely in the ark of salvation. The floodgates of the sky are opened. Again, this happens either at the same time or shortly after fountains of the great deep burst open. Until this day, there was probably no rain. That is not the way that God set up the ecology of the earth to function in the original creation. It's not until after the flood that we get a rainbow as a promise from God. People point out the fact that if you don't have rainbows and you don't have rain. Exactly, that's kind of the point. There was no rain. There were no rainbows. This is not something that God began to do in the rain, but it is something he began with the rain. When the rain comes, we have that promise of God's faithfulness to us in the rainbow. The fountains or the uh, windows... Of the sky were prepared also on day two. God said, let there be an expanse in the midst of the waters and let it separate the waters from the waters. God made the expanse and separated the waters which were below the expanse from the waters which were above the expanse. And it was so. God called the expanse heaven and there was evening and there was morning a second day. Now, one theory of what this means is that there was a vapor canopy of water surrounding the earth in the original creation. This is a perfectly plausible postulation. The text permits this to be true. It does not demand it, and that's why I did not teach this directly, but it does absolutely permit this. This can be what the text means when it says the waters above were separated from the waters below. It is probably a very good interpretation of this. And when those fountains of the great deep burst open and the volcanics began to touch the water, the water would instantly evaporate. The tectonics would reach into the atmosphere Shooting particles of dust into this vapor canopy that would spread around the whole earth, and it would begin to rain. And that rain would continue for days and days and days. This was volcanic rain. This is rain that probably explains why there was a roof on the ark probably explains why Noah was supposed to cover it, not just on the parts that would touch the water, but on the top as well. The ark was fully pitched inside and out and all around. Because this is not what the ark looked like. It was not a fun day at the zoo. It was hell on earth. And God was carrying Noah safely through it. So then what can we learn from the events of the flood? We probably learn a little bit about those nursery books we had as children and how inaccurate they are in drawing pictures of Noah's Ark. But we also learn that God knows a bit more about history than us. He knows a bit more about the present than us. And surely, he knows more about the future than we could ever try to know without him. Peter mentions this. He ties knowledge of the past to knowledge of the future. In 2 Peter 3, verse 3, he says, know this first of all, that in the last days, mockers will come with their mocking, following after their own lusts and saying, where is the promise of his coming? How do we know he's really going to do what he said he would do? For ever since the fathers fell asleep, all continues just as it was from the beginning of creation. This is something called uniformitarianism, It is what most scientists believe, that when they look at the processes that happen scientifically on the earth today, they mirror that which has always happened forever. Well, when we look at the flood, we see that this is not the case. Not only is the flood not something we can observe today as the way that God, or as the, uh, the way that things happen today, but we can see from the scriptures that we looked at this morning that The ecology of the earth looked a lot different before the flood as well. Things have not always been the same. Peter says, for when they maintain this, when they claim this, when this is the foundation they choose to stand on, it escapes their notice. Now in the Greek here, it would probably be better rendered, they are willingly ignorant of this. They choose not to believe that by the word of God, the heavens existed long ago, and the earth was formed out of water and by water, through which the world at that time was destroyed, being flooded with water. Peter tells us that the account of Noah's flood was historical. And he says that it changed everything that uniformitarianism is not consistent with how God operates in the earth. Not all things are consistent in all times. God works in different ways, in different places, at different times. But by his word, the present heavens and earth are being reserved for fire. Kept for the day of judgment and destruction of ungodly men. You know what that sounds a lot like to me? Genesis 6, 3. I will not always bear with men. My grace does not last forever. There will come a point where grace ends and judgment begins. But those who have already received grace will not lose it. They will be kept by it. The offer to get in the ark will end at some point. I like this observation that Matthew Henry has. Now, he's quite an old commentator. Probably no matter how old you are here, your grandmother or grandfather had this on their shelf. Matthew Henry. He writes, as there are waters underneath the earth, so Etna and Vesuvius and other volcanoes proclaim the world to the world that there are subterranean fires too. So that when the time predetermined comes between these fires, the earth and all the works therein shall be burnt out as the flood was brought upon the old world out of the fountains of the great deep. He's drawing a parallel here. God used natural processes triggered by divine intervention to judge the earth before. These two things which were within the earth, water which has now been released onto the surface of the earth, there is still tectonics, magma, lava beneath the earth it is still superheated. And so he says, perhaps just as God released the fountains of the great deep to fill the earth with water, so when it comes time to burn the earth, he will release the fountains of the great deep to burn it with. It's possible that God will simply snap his divine fingers and the earth will be burned to a crisp and cleansed. But it may as well be that from the very day of creation when he formed the earth he already planned for the cleansing of the earth. This naturally is a bit frightening but it shouldn't be for us just as it shouldn't have been for Noah and we don't really get evidence that it was frightening for Noah. There were probably times when he became a little anxious but all it took was a glance at God's history, His record of faithfulness. And all of those worries could subside. The same goes for us. So as we look forward to that future generation, as we stand in a generation that has a similar promise that God will not always let this wickedness on this earth continue, we have the promise that He will remain faithful to us and that we will be taken out of the way beforehand. In 2 Thessalonians 2, Paul writes, Now we request you, brethren, with regard to the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ and our gathering together to him that you not be quickly shaken. He's talking about the rapture here. You not be quickly shaken from your composure or be disturbed either by a spirit or a message or a letter f- as if from us to the effect that the day of the Lord has come. They are getting worried in Thessalonica because they received a letter that purported to be from Paul that said the day of the Lord has come. But you know, it didn't quite look like what they expected. They expected to be gathered together with the Lord on the day of the Lord. They were worried that judgment had begun and they were still there. So Paul reassures them, let no one in any way deceive you. For it will not come unless the departure comes first. Now you'll notice I've bracketed and italicized this word because the NASB has translated this miserably. In the NASB it writes the apostasy. But that, just like baptism, is lazy translating. Transliterating the Greek word directly into the English because they don't want to make a theological statement about which they believe this means. Apostasy is the Greek word apostasia It comes from the preposition apo meaning away from and stasia coming or uh, which gives us the word stasis, static, station. This word apostasia means moving away from one's station, moving away from a place. This is why We have adopted that Greek word, apostasy, that when we move away from our station as Christians, we apostatize. But that is nowhere here in the context. The context is the day of the Lord, the context is the gathering together with Him. And so it is a far better translation of apostasia to call it exactly what it is a departure not a departure from truth, but a departure from this earth which has been promised to the church. That unless the departure comes first, the man of lawlessness is revealed. The son of destruction who opposes and exalts himself above every so-called God or object of worship so that he takes his seat in the temple of God displaying himself as being God. You see, there is a Christ and there is a false Christ And in between those two Christs is the departure of the saints. God does not send judgment until he has taken away his righteous. And how are we made righteous? We are made righteous through faith, by grace, on the basis of his son's finished work on the cross. Titus 2.11 says, For the grace of God has appeared. They're bringing salvation to all men, instructing us to deny ungodliness and worldly desires and to live sensibly, righteously, and godly in the present age. Live like Noah while awaiting the salvation that Noah awaited. Looking for the blessed hope. What is the blessed hope of the church but our gathering together with him? Our departure before judgment sets in. Looking for the blessed hope and the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Christ Jesus, who gave himself for us to redeem us from every lawless deed and to purify for himself a people for his own possession, zealous for good deeds. First Thessalonians 5, nine. For God has not destined us for wrath. The judgment that is coming is not meant for us. We will not be left here to endure what has already been paid for on our account by Christ, but for obtaining salvation through our Lord Jesus Christ who died for us so that whether we are awake or asleep, we will live together with him. Therefore, encourage one another and build up one another just as you also are doing. Looking forward to the salvation in Christ that comes before judgment, not being dragged through the mud, hanging by a thread, but seated with him in the heavenlies already. And so with the writer of Hebrews, in verse, or in chapter 10, we can be in full agreement We have a gift of this fellowship. Noah had eight people, including himself, who were guaranteed salvation on that ark. We have countless thousands with whom God has promised salvation in the ark of his son. We can encourage one another, keeping an eye on his promises, keeping an eye on the salvation promised in him. When one of us loses hope, the other comes alongside and reminds them of God's faithfulness, of all that God has done, all that God has said, and just how perfect that hope we have in him is. And so our takeaway this morning, God keeps his promises. And he has promised us safety. That safety is in the safe arms of his son. Rest in him just as Noah did. Trust him that he holds you eternally secure. And that as the days of destruction draw near, your salvation is even nearer. Let us pray. Dear Lord, we thank you. For your perfect faithfulness. We thank you for the confidence that we can have in your finished work and that none of our work does any finishing for us. It is an outflow of that which you have already done. You have enabled us for good works. You encourage us with your word. You encourage us with the sure word of prophecy, and we can rest secure knowing that you have already taken care of all that it will take to bring us into the new world, life in your Son eternally. We pray these things, Lord, in the name of your Son, Jesus Christ. Amen.